Hebrews 11 that we're going to be talking about today is probably the most well-known chapter in the book of Hebrews. Uh, This is the one most people's minds turn to when you mention Hebrews. Uh, And and last week we we transitioned, if you were here, from that big long section of exalting Christ as our great high priest, something we're not really familiar with, but using that Old Testament priestly language to help us better understand who Christ is and what he's done for us. And we looked at that over chapters 5 through 10. And so last week we transitioned out of that uh, and and we looked at a a section of exhortation, which was really three uh, statements or commands of exhortation at the end of chapter 10, which basically kind of summarize and frame out for us the rest of the letter of the Hebrews. So we remember these were the lettuces, the three lettuces, let us draw near in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, faith, hope, and love, the same triad that we see in Paul's writings as well. So the author, uh, like I said, is going to kind of frame out the rest of our time, and we'll we'll be in Hebrews through the end of August, but the author is going to pick up that theme of loving one another in chapter 13, but first he's going to take up these related topics of faith and hope uh, in chapters 11 and 12. So before we dive into chapter 11, which is all about faith, Uh, and hope also. Uh, I want to go ahead and recap the closing verses of chapter 10, which kind of situates for us. It kind of contextualizes these topics of faith and hope in the context of how we're supposed to think about them in this letter, which is the context of suffering and the need for endurance, something that we can all appreciate. So I'm going to jump back to 1032. The author says, but remember the former days, speaking to these first century Jewish Christians, when after being enlightened, receiving the light of the gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. And he goes on to talk about that. And then verse 34, he says, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one than the stuff of this earth. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God in this life, when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And then he says, but my righteous one or my just one shall live by faith. So now with that as our context, we're ready to, to, to jump in and consider chapter 11, where this idea of living by faith is linked with faithful perseverance. So I was, I was looking at, uh, I warned Amy that this was going to, we were going to talk about photography, so I told her she could call me out if, if I mess anything up here. But I was looking at some photos that, that she took of our family the other day, and they're really beautiful photos. The lighting and, and the detail and everything was, was, uh, was really amazing. And it got me thinking as I was looking at faith in chapter 11 that faith to me is like photography in in a lot of different ways. But think about this. Two people can photograph the exact same scene at the exact same time of day with the exact same camera or equipment and end up with two very different looking images, right? Uh, and, And similarly, I think two people can experience the exact same circumstances in this life in different ways, and I think the difference is often the quality of our faith. Same circumstances, different ways of experiencing those circumstances, and the difference is faith. 
But, but faith, and this is going to be so important for us to grab hold of, faith isn't merely a feeling that we produce like red blood cells or glucose or something, okay? Faith is, is, is not just merely a feeling that we can produce more of. It's really about how we perceive the world around us in light of who God is and what God has said. The quality of our faith can let in more or less of God's truth, much like the aperture on the lens of a camera can let in more or less of the natural light in taking photographs. The, the, the quality of our faith can also help us to better see the, the details of the backdrop of God's grace in our lives, sort of the depth of field, to use photography language, uh, including bringing into sharp focus the future fulfillment of his promises, which so often for us as Christians can be these blurry, hazy realities in the backdrop of our life that don't have much sharpness and definition. In our struggles, we, we say this, and we hear other people say this, you just need to have more faith. And these are well-meaning people. And I've said this before, but I think a lot of the times it comes across like, like a professional photographer like, like Amy scrolling through the underexposed images in our digital cameras and then telling me that uh, I just need to take brighter, more beautiful pictures. That would solve it. You just got to take brighter pictures, Ben. But I'm a novice. I, I don't know what that means. I mean, how much cooler would it be if she actually showed me how to use my camera, that's like a, like a $500 saddle on a $50 horse, uh, how to adjust the aperture, the, the shutter speed, the ISO, uh, which I understand those are three pretty important things if you're going to take good pictures, but, but how cool if, if I could be shown how to use those things to take brighter, more beautiful photographs. The author of Hebrews knew that his readers would be tempted to see their suffering in the dismal light of despair. He, he knew that the eyes of their hearts would be creating underexposed images that didn't accurately reflect the light of God's glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why the author spends so much time, and we see that in today's passage, teaching the readers and us, by extension, about faith, how it works, and, and what a difference faith can make in how we live our lives. Faith allows us, this is the big idea for today, it allows us to see and to experience life in the full light of God's truth. Today's passage, which is chapter 11, uh, it reveals how we can first perceive the truth of God's word by faith. We can take in the truth, the light of God's grace and glory and the truth of his promises. So first we see how we can perceive that truth of God's word by faith and then how our perception of God and his truth will help us to ultimately persevere in this life. So by faith we can perceive the truth of God's word. Verse 1 is, is sometimes referred to as a definition of faith. And if there's the most famous verse in the most famous chapter of Hebrews, it's Hebrews chapter uh, 11, verse 1. And it's often talked about, it's kind of a definition of faith, but I, I think it's better to think of it as a description of faith. And it has really two parts to it. The first half and the second half of the verse. First, we see that faith uh, is the experience of God's hope, and then faith as the evidence of unseen spiritual realities. So those are the two things we're going to look at first. So by faith, we experience the bright hope 
of God's promises. We experience the bright hope of God's promises by faith. And we see this connection between faith and hope in the first half of verse 1. So I want to show you how it gets translated in different English uh, Bibles. By the way, all the Bibles that you're using, I'm sure, are great translations. But in the work of interpreting Greek and Hebrew, uh, different translations choose different ways of interpreting different passages. And sometimes there's some significant differences that we need to think through and we need to work through as we're reading it in English. And this is one of those places where we need to understand how the different translations uh, uh, interpret these things. So first of all, let's look at how faith can be interpreted as a subjective feeling, how this Greek, the Greek terms we're looking at here can, can be a subjective feeling. So look, I've got, I think, four here. Yeah. So faith is being sure of what we hope for. You get that subjective feeling, being sure of, confidence in, the certainty of, the assurance of. It's a subjective feeling of confidence. And then we see the last two, the Christian Standard Bible and the King James and also the New King James, if you use that. And, and they, they're interpreting faith as an objective reality. Now, there's a difference here, and it can be interpreted in both ways. So this matters, okay? But, but uh, CSB calls it the reality of what is hoped for, King James, and the New King James, the substance of what. So it's a concrete, objective reality versus a subjective feeling, okay? I don't want to get too technical, but it's an important distinction. So the Greek noun that's translated as faith, it's uh, pistis or pistis. Uh, it can mean a feeling of confidence in the, the subjective sense or then the concept of faithfulness. You see the difference? The feeling of confidence, having faith, versus actual faithfulness, the, the concrete objective reality of living your life in a way that instills, you know, people's confidence in you, all right? So that's the two senses. And there's a lot of debate between scholars on whether to understand faith in Hebrews 11 in that subjective or that objective way. But I, I like the conclusion of this scholar named Donald Hagner. It's going to come up on your screen. To me, it seems pretty reasonable. He writes this, he says, throughout this chapter, the emphasis concerning faith is not on the subjective confidence of the persons mentioned, but on the ways in which they acted out or gave expression to their faith. And you could tell that as John was reading it, right? It's really focusing on how they gave expression to their faith, how it was acted out. The objective understanding of this verse, of course, presupposes the reality of subjective assurance. What he's saying there is that, of course, there's also a feeling of confidence as these people live out their faith. That goes hand in hand. But where's the emphasis lie? He says uh, that, uh, that this objective understanding of faithfulness, if you will, presupposes the reality of subjective assurance as the wellspring of acts of faith. So yes, a feeling of confidence in God is going to be a wellspring of acting faithfully in accordance with God's truth and promises. That makes sense. Okay, he goes on to say, but it is the expression of faith rather than the conviction of faith that is the author's point in this chapter. The obedient response of faith substantiates what is promised. David Allen, who's another Hebrew scholar, he cites a, a guy by the last name of Lane to make a similar point. I want to read this to you too. I want to kind of give you some different facets so we can better understand this. David Allen writes, as Lane pointed out, faith is objective because it bestows upon the objects of hope a present reality, enabling the believer to enjoy now 
the full certainty of future realization. Faith is the objective grounds upon which subjective confidence may be based. In other words, faith can be understood as the manner or the means of possessing already what one hopes for. If all that seemed like gobbledygook, just hang on to that. Faith can be understood as the manner or means of possessing already what one hopes for. That's going to be important here in a second. So by faith, we experience the bright hope of God's promises. They're not just some fuzzy, blurry reality out on the horizon of of life uh, on the other side of physical death. They're to be taken hold of and experienced in the present and have a present effect on our lives. By faith, and this is the second part of that, we also evidence the invisible claims of God's word. So this is the point of the second half of verse 1. So again, look at the two different ways that this gets translated. This is the second half of verse 1. And it should come up on the screen. So the first three speak of this subjective feeling. They talk about assurance about what we do not see, being convinced of what we do not see, the conviction of things not seen. Now look at how it shifts to the translations that interpret it as an objective reality. Now, faith is a proof of things not seen. Now, faith is the proof of what is not seen. Now, faith is the evidence of things not seen. Do you see the difference? The feeling of confidence and the objective, concrete reality, the evidence, the proof. So there's another Hebrew scholar named Albert Barnes who explains how faith evidences unseen things. He writes, faith in the divine declarations, that is what God has said, the truth of God, faith in the divine declarations answers all the purposes of a convincing argument or is itself a convincing argument to the mind of the real existence of those things which are not seen. And and this is the, the, the point here. It is that, so faith is that which enables us to feel and act as if they were real or which causes them to exert an influence over us as if we saw them. How can these blurry, fuzzy, distant promises of God out on the horizon of life, on the other side of death, how can those things be proof and evidence in our lives today? How can our faith be the proof and evidence of the reality of those things out on the horizon? How can the way we live our lives in faithfulness bring uh, definition and sharpness to those fuzzy, blurry promises of God that seems so distant. By faith, we can perceive the truth of God's word. We can experience the bright hope of God's promises, and we are called to evidence the otherwise invisible claims of scripture. Bless you. Uh, The other day I was cooking for our family, um, and now I can't take full credit because Literally, Stacy sent me the instructions and have everything prepped by the time she left. But uh, I was cooking bacon-wrapped pork chops, big, thick, juicy pork chops, uh, steamed sweet peas, my daughter's favorite, warm buttered bread, and sliced golden potatoes that were sprinkled with sea salt and roasted in olive oil. Right, uh, you're ready for lunch now, right? And, and that's not too shabby for a guy that really can only cook things on a grill most of the time. But anyway... As I was getting everything ready to serve, my son, who has an incredible sense of smell, makes his way down to the kitchen. He sort of drifts over to the island in our kitchen. He plucks a few of the uh, 
uh, fresh out of the oven roasted potato slices and starts to eat them. And then he did it again. And I turn around, he's doing it again. I turn back around, he's doing it again. And, and finally, I had to ask him to hold off until dinner was ready because he was going to clear out the entire pan of, of these potatoes. But while he was doing this and afterwards, he was going on and on about how good the dinner looked and smelled. I mean, he relished it. Even after he stopped eating, he's like, oh, it tastes so good. It smells so good. And then he went on and on about how good the, the potatoes tasted. Uh, and, and before we had even sat down to eat, I heard him tell my wife, he asked if we could have this meal more often. I mean, he had just had the little bitty slices of roasted potato. He hadn't even sunk his teeth into the the bacon-wrapped pork chops, you know? He's already saying, can we have this meal more often? And you know what? If you had been in the other room in our house that day, you would have been absolutely convinced that an incredible meal was about to be served at the Brummett home. And guys, I think this is what Hebrews 11.1 is talking about. It's that by faith we can have a, what I'm going to call a foretaste of the future fulfillment of God's great promises in Christ. And as we receive that foretaste, like he started eating some of those potatoes before we sat down and served the meal, as we receive that foretaste and relish it, the transforming effect of our present experience as Christians should be a witness of the truth of everything that God has promised us in Scripture, which would otherwise, think about this, would otherwise be invisible to the people around us. Think about that. By faith, we can perceive the truth of God's Word. We can experience the bright hope of His promises. And we must evidence the otherwise invisible claims of Scripture for the glory of God and for the good of others around us. As Christians, our faith enables us to be truly, uh, I'm sorry, to truly experience a foretaste of all that God has promised us in Christ. Think about this. We can experience right now the love of God in Christ. This is not some fuzzy, bleary, distant, dark reality on the horizon. We today can experience the love of God in Christ, the hope and the peace and the joy of Christ, the justice and the righteousness that we crave for in this life that's going to characterize his fully consummated kingdom when he returns to establish it on the earth. And on and on and on. I think as, as John 15 is the famous uh, analogy of the, the vine and the branches, as John 15 says, we are to abide in Christ. As we trust in Him, as we put our faith in Him, what's going to happen? He's the spiritual vine. And the otherwise invisible life of the spiritual vine will come through us as the branches that are abiding in Him and will produce visible spiritual fruit in and, and around our lives. And really, ultimately, it's the power of the Holy Spirit bringing the life of Christ to bear on our lives in such a way that the invisible things that Scripture talks about become visible. I mean, think about Galatians 5.22, that that, that love and joy and peace and patience, that's one I'd like to see more of, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Christ-likeness is made visible in and through our lives as we abide in Him. So the first verse in chapter 11 reveals how we can perceive the truth of God's word by faith. And then the rest of the chapter, we have 39 more verses left in the chapter, and we're going to go through those much more quickly. But 
the rest of the chapter demonstrates how that spiritual perception, when we receive the light of God's truth and God's promises, and it, it exposes us to the truth of God, and we begin to experience that and evidence that, how then that spiritual perception will undoubtedly lead folks to a life of perseverance. So by faith, we can persevere through the trials of life. If there's anybody in here that maybe might have a trial in life, right? No, that's not it. It's all of us have trials in this life. We all have things that we have to endure, that situations in which we must persevere. And we're constantly scratching our noggins saying, how do we do this? How can I persevere in this set of circumstances? And this is the answer, and this is what we see demonstrated. The major concern of the letter to the Hebrews is that these brand new, well, maybe they've been in the faith a while, but these first century Jewish Christians might be tempted to, what does he say over and over again in the warnings? To fall away, to turn away, to fall back, to come short, you know, all these things, disbelief and disobedience. So the major concern of Hebrews is this falling away from Christ in the midst of suffering and persecution. When do we fall away from Christ? When things are awesome? Well, probably more often than we would like to admit, but especially when things get hard and we're tempted to fall away in our suffering, in our persecution. Therefore, the author exhorts them to endure, and, and he does this in chapter 11. How does he exhort these people to endure? What does he do? He shows them a litany of examples of the faithful perseverance of Old Testament saints. Just what John read. It's this huge long list. By faith, by faith, by faith. That word faith shows up 24 times in this chapter alone. And it's connected to uh, people and events from the Old Testament. By faith, by faith, by faith. And that's how he demonstrates to them the faithful perseverance that comes from this kind of life that we're talking about. So this chapter has been called the Hall of Faith, but I think of it as the photo album of faith. Let's stick with that photography analogy for a minute. Think of this as the photo album of faith. It's like the author takes all these snapshots of different scenes and different, different characters from the Old Testament and he strings them all together. He puts them in a photo album for us. And as we look at all the cumulative effect of this bringing together of people and events from the Old Testament, we see at least two major themes coming out. We see that faith patiently endures present suffering, and we see that faith confidently expects future fulfillment. Now, there's other things we could highlight. We could spend weeks on this chapter alone, but I want to highlight those two, that faith endures patiently present suffering, and that faith confidently expects future fulfillment, and those things are related. So faith patiently endures present suffering. Sometimes faith in God leads to joyful triumphs. And we see that later on, don't we? Military victories and these incredible, miraculous, uh, 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 redemptive moments and salvation that God provides and uh, unlooked for salvation and, and triumph and victory and all these things. And we see that listed here. But you know, faith in God sometimes also leads to seasons of suffering. I mean, we don't so much deal with like persecution, for instance, in our country, but there are brothers and sisters in Christ all over the face of the earth who are castigated, who are persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, who are put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. 
That happens every day in our world still. Sometimes we see those seasons of suffering, and and we especially see this in some of the snapshots in our photo album of faith, in the story of Moses in verses 23 to 27, in the nameless suffering saints in verses 35 to 38. So I want to read uh, these unnamed saints in, in verses 35 to 38. Listen to these words that the author puts in here. Just imagine this for a minute. And this is all in the Old Testament, okay? Starting in verse 35, these unnamed saints who were tortured, not accepting their release. They're not going to uh, uh, throw Christ away just so they can get out of prison, so they can get out of harm's way. They weren't accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men and women of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And then in verses 24 to 27, we read the story of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And this last phrase, he was looking to the reward, that brings up our next point, which is the basis for our patient endurance. It's that faith confidently expects future fulfillment. Guys, if those distant fulfillments of God's promises are are fuzzy, if they're blurry, if they're ill-defined, if they're out in the... the, the, uh, uh, the soft, blurry backdrop of our lives, are we going to patiently endure if we're not clear on the fact that we are living this life in light of eternity, in light of the full consummation of God's promises to us in Christ? Those things are related. So faith confidently expects future fulfillment. And even before that, our faith will receive the commendation of God himself. I love this. But he does commend our faith And that's why we see these people's faith commended in our passage. But he also promises that our faithfulness will be fully rewarded in the future. He doesn't miss a thing in terms of looking for ways our faithfulness in this life will receive not just his commendation, but but his reward. We see the commendation of God in several places. I'm just going to scan through a couple. Verse 2 really kind of seems to serve as a summary statement for the rest of the chapter uh, when it says, For it, referring to faith, the men of old gained approval. All right? So that's the commendation of God. By faith, the men of old gained approval. In verse 4, we read that Abel's faithful sacrifice was commended by God. Even though he got killed for his faith, In his faithful sacrifice by his brother, he was commended by God. It says he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. That is righteous by faith. God testifying about his gifts. In verse 5, we read that Enoch obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And then we get this really great additional comment uh, on how faithfulness is pleasing to God. It says he who comes to God must do two things. 
must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And we seek him through faithfulness. He's a rewarder of those who seek him. In verse 7, Noah believes God's word about an as yet unseen flood and he obeys in reverent fear by constructing an ark based on the warning of God that was as yet unseen, some flood way off in the distant future, right? Maybe a hundred plus years later, but he gets busy building an ark for the salvation of his family in faithfulness. And it says he became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. In other words, he could now look forward to inheriting the righteousness of Christ. In verses 8 and 10, Abraham leaves his country. That's a huge deal. We don't get that in our culture because we can kind of go wherever and be mobile, but they, they, you did not leave your family. You did not leave the security, the wealth, the comfort, the, the stability of where you lived, in your family context, in your country, where they speak your language and they know you and they can protect you and you can band together. People don't do that. Abram did that, okay? In verse 7, we see, uh, I'm sorry, verses 8 through 10, we see him leaving his country because he confidently expected to receive an inheritance in the land of promise. And he was looking forward, it says. He wasn't looking at his present circumstances. He was looking forward, it says, to the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's why he would not be comfortable in this life. That's why he lived in tents and went around like a nomad in the land of promise because he wasn't going to settle for this life and whatever he could scrap together. He was looking forward to a city with foundations. And we're going to see that city in chapter 12, by the way. In verses 11 and 12, Sarah confidently expects God to fulfill his promise of a son despite her infertility and her advanced age. She, she's confident that God will fulfill that promise. And the text says she considered him faithful who had promised. She was looking forward to that promise, that fulfillment. In verses 17 to 22, Abraham and his descendants, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they confidently expect God to fulfill his promises. And get this, and this is, this is something that should, I don't know, I want to go back and, and, and ruminate on this one when it talks about Abraham, but they trusted that God would fulfill his promises even if that would require raising his son Isaac from the dead. He was still confident God would, would fulfill those promises through Isaac. Or if it was on the back end of 430 years of slavery. Joseph predicted that, but he was still confident that God would bring them after four and a half centuries in slavery in Egypt, he would bring them out into the promised land. And again, you got the story of Moses in 26, where we're told that he's looking to the reward. And then I want to read these last two uh, sections. This is the middle section is verse 13 to 16, and then the last kind of conclusion in verses 39 and 40. And we kind of see the main points of, of what he's getting at with this photo album of faith. In verses 13, it says, all these died, all these people we're talking about died in faith without receiving ultimately the promises. But having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then in verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 
And then we see in the last two verses of our chapter, and all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. We get to to experience that together with them in this wonderful heavenly city. So like these Old Testament saints, faith allows us to persevere because it gives us the confident expectation of future fulfillment and reward, including our perfection together in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate basis for our confident expectation of the future fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. The resurrection is the basis of our faith. It's like Paul says, if, if the resurrection didn't happen, then we're fools. If, the res- if I didn't think the resurrection actually happened 2,000 years ago, I would not be a pastor. I would not be preaching to you this morning, okay? I'd be out doing something, you know, whatever. But certainly not spending time in here if I didn't believe the resurrection was true. The resurrection is the basis for our confident expectation that God is fulfilling and will ultimately fulfill his promises, The resurrection marks the beginning of the age of fulfillment. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, that that inaugurated, that kicked off this age of fulfillment that will come to full consummation when he returns to the earth. And this is why the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, think about it, like his apostles, at least 11 of the 12 went to violent deaths defending their faith in the resurrection. They would not lay it aside. Do you know why? Do you know why they suffered martyrdom for their testimonies of Christ's resurrection? It's because the resurrection itself that they had experienced and seen gave them the confident expectation that God was going to fulfill his promises and that they had that to look forward to even on the other side of, of violent martyrdom. They could trust that they too would be resurrected just like he was and rewarded in the world to come. So even those who believed without witnessing the resurrection. Now there's hundreds, Paul tells us, that did actually interact with the risen Christ. But think of all the people since then. Think of the early church for 250 years. Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire. It didn't become a legitimate religion for 250 years. So for two and a half centuries, Christians who did not meet the risen Christ were dying for their faith in the resurrection. They witnessed the confident expectation of the apostles, those who came before them, and that confident expectation of the apostles, they considered that evidence of the reality of the resurrection. And folks, today, it's still the fact that, that the way the early church patiently endured suffering is still one of the greatest external evidences for the reality of the resurrection. That is a head-scratcher for people. Why on earth is there even such a thing as Christianity if all these original people knew it was a hoax? And people try and figure that out. I think the most reasonable explanation is the explanation of Christianity, that it's true. Jesus Christ did die on a cross and rise from the dead. Saints throughout the centuries have persevered by faith with a confident expectation of rewards for faithfulness and the future fulfillment of all that God has promised us in Christ. 
Hebrews 11 is like a photo album of faith. It reveals this vivid perseverance of the saints in the warm light of God's grace. Their faithful perseverance makes the truths of God visible to the surrounding world, doesn't it? And and folks, my prayer is that our church, that Wayside Communities Church, that the people that God has brought together here would, would, would do the exact same thing. That all of our stories of faithful perseverance would present a picture of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he actually died for our sins and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Our great and exalted high priest who will one day return to the earth in fulfillment of all of God's promises. I want our collective cumulative stories of faithful perseverance to to, to be a photo album of faith to the world around us, to encourage fellow Christians and to give non-Christians the opportunity to consider our faith in Christ. But how can we reveal these truths to the world? It's when by faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we remain faithful to our wedding vows even when things feel hopeless. When by faith we persevere in our parenting, even when we feel useless as parents, worthless sometimes. When by faith we persevere at work, even when we feel joyless in our jobs or purposeless in our vocations. By faith we have a confident expectation that our faithfulness in this life will be rewarded and that we will receive the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the world to come. And I'll close with the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 11, verses 34. And and I love this image that he gives us. Jesus says this in Luke 11. He says, The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Folks, faith allows us to see and to experience life in the full light of God's truth and God's promises. By faith, we can perceive the truth of his word, and then our perception of God will help us to persevere in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Next week, Kevin is going to be preaching, and he is going to pick up in chapter 12, Uh, which follows these same themes, um, but we're going to see where where living by faith means fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, our Lord. So let me pray for us.